His family called him Lenny, after the large lumbering character from the Steinbeck classic of Mice and Men, a simple-minded man who is usually unaware of how his actions are affecting everyone around him. It's easy to see how that moniker fell onto Donald Dunn. His final hours of freedom were filled with a series of errors that seemed par for the course in his life. At 23, Dunn already had a couple of kids by two different women, and he'd convinced his 17-year-old girlfriend, Vanessa, to run away with him to California. She had a troubled past of her own and was living with eight brothers and sisters at the end of a country road on the east side of King County, just outside Snoqualmie. So on June 22, 1993, they stole a Volkswagen van. They hadn't even made it out of town when they ran out of gas. They hopped out and hopped into another stolen car. Donald was apparently intent on having that van though. They filled up a jerry can at the gas station and headed back towards the Volkswagen. They were just yards from reaching it when they were pulled over by police. And Dunn was on the run with Vanessa in tow sprinting toward the van where Donald would make his final stand and Vanessa would take her final breath. You know, we see a lot of dead bodies as policemen and that kind of thing, but not actually a murder in front of our eyes. My original plan was I was just gonna get out of the van and start shooting at you in, hope, in hopes that you'd shoot back. Uh -huh. What changed that plan? Well, she insisted that I don't do that. I have to tell you, it was one of the hardest things I've had to do in my career, to sit across from this guy and be nice. Hostage negotiator Jim Fuda takes us back to the scene of the crime to walk through those final moments. And he takes us with him to prison, where he tries to answer the age-old question, why did Lenny do it? I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. Uh, so Kim, you had me at the Mice of Men reference, but also this is a subject that so fascinates me. The, the mind of the perpetrator is also an extension of that scene of the crime, and we see this in this case, the clues that investigators, negotiators uh, tried to unlock, you know, in real time. What makes this person tick before it's too late? Yeah, and they're on a deadline. They're on a clock. And especially in this case, he literally gives them a deadline. So we'll get to that. But before we jump into all of the details, I want to recognize the amazing work and the incredible demeanor of Jim Fuda. <laughs> yeah. He was the lead hostage negotiator in King County for many, many years. He went on to train other negotiators, and he's now the director of law enforcement services for Crime Stoppers of Puget Sound. And not only did he share details about this case and the negotiations with us, but we get to hear this jailhouse interview with Donald Dunn, and it is so impressive. I don't know how he kept himself from leaping across that table. He is remarkably composed and is able to use this interview as an asset with future training on how to negotiate with a sociopath. So let's introduce you now to Donald Dunn. Now, as I mentioned, he'd had two young children by two different women, and he was known to be abusive. He had a wife and a girlfriend at the same time. Both of them had kids. They were six weeks apart. Total antisocial personality. Had restraining orders out from both of them. He had threatened to take one of his kids with a rifle. In January of 1992, he was arrested for pointing a loaded hunting rifle at his wife and threatening to kill her. 
It should have been a felony case. But according to the Seattle Times, Dunn's wife recanted. So the prosecutor decided to allow Dunn to plead guilty to fourth-degree assault, which was a misdemeanor. He was sentenced to just 12 days in jail and two years probation. But even that, Dunn couldn't do. He never showed up to serve the jail time. He continued to beat on his wife, and he also ignored a court order to get a mental health evaluation. So in November of that year, Dunn was back in court, not for this case. His ex-girlfriend, who was eight months pregnant, was now asking for a protection order. According to court records, she said that Dunn was, quote, threatening to go to the hospital while I was having the baby and take the baby with an AK-47. And if he doesn't get the baby, he'll shoot it. So, Kim, you know, ideally when you're about to give birth, you know, it's a glorious time. You feel loved and supported. And this woman is being terrorized. Plus, he's got his ex that he has a child with who's being terrorized. And this gives us insight into the future scene of the crime. And fortunately, in hindsight, how truly manipulative and controlling this guy is. And we know that he probably doesn't even give a rip about the baby. You know, it's just his way of controlling and manipulating these women. Right, exactly. And 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 you'll see throughout this case that he feels like the world has done him wrong. He feels like the victim, or at least he paints himself that way. So a few months after this protection order was issued for his girlfriend, Dunn was back in court again. And this time it was the wife. She also now wanted a protection order because she said Dunn had threatened to kidnap their three-month-old son and to kill her. Now, remember, Dunn was already on probation when these two protection orders were granted. The Seattle Times noted that at the time, probation officers were not in the practice of checking civil court proceedings. Dunn's probation officer may have had no idea about all the threats and the protection orders that were happening. In March of 1993, more than a year after the original assault case, Dunn was back in court because his probation officer did notice that he still hadn't gotten that mental health evaluation. And there was another assault accusation against him, this time from a 14-year-old runaway who said that he had attacked her. Dunn was given a 90-day sentence for attacking the teen. Again, he never showed up for that jail sentence. The judge also revoked his probation and said that he would have to spend a year in jail for threatening his wife. But she then suspended that sentence on the condition that he go into treatment and that he not get into any more trouble. You know, Dunn's patterns are here. This happened in, ni- this is 1994, right? This is, we're in 93 at this point. So it's, it makes you wonder, you know, you would hope that these breadcrumbs that are like, not even everywhere. They're like, they're like screaming like a full loaf of bread. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like you wonder, do you think it was the timing where women were not their domestic abuse, not only cries for help, but just like, hey, help me with this person. I mean, you can feel the desperation. I can feel it just in the way that you're presenting the story. Yeah. These women have gone beyond you know, wondering if they're in a domestic situation and like those feelings of guilt and like, you know, his apologies. It'll never happen again to I need some real help. Well, think about Stockholm Syndrome, because I, I think that is going to come up again and again in okay. this case, because these women, they complain about him. They, they go to court, but then they recant. And a lot of times it's the, oh, well, he feels really bad. He says he's going to get treatment. He apologized. You know, they're, they're reasoning it out. And, and I can understand where when you have really young children, you want 
to have a partner to raise that child. You want to believe that they are going to change. Mm -hmm. And he was pretty good about being convincing about that. Well, and we know these types of men are very manipulative. We've seen it from the stories that we've done so far. So I, I just it's sad that the ball was dropped on his mental evaluation because I think that that would, you know, who knows? And again, in hindsight, it's easy for us to say. But right. The judge who let him out of that year jail sentence, who suspended that sentence, she would later explain that she was worried if she put him in jail for a time that he would still have anger issues and violent issues when he got out. Because at the time, there wasn't mental health treatment that was offered in the jail system. So she thought that he would be better off out of jail where he could get treatment and hopefully deal with his issues so that he wasn't back in front of her again. So in this case, Dunn finally did go to treatment. He attended group therapy for two hours, twice a week, for three weeks. Clearly, though, it didn't help. Dunn was able to lure another young girl into his life, this time 17-year-old Vanessa Baston. He had um, was not seeing either of one of those women anymore, started dating a 17-year-old girl that had had problems at home with her family. And then he decided that they were going to run off to California together. And he had convinced her that they had to steal some cars and write some bad checks and those kinds of things. They were staying at a motel in uh, North Bend. Can't you just see this girl? You, didn't you say in your scene setter, you alluded to the fact that she was like one of eight children. Yeah. You know, she had a really tough life. You Here you have this older guy that probably knew exactly what to say to her, all the right things. And like, hey, you know, I know this is going to make you uncomfortable. But if we do this, we can ride off into the sunset with a Euro van. Any 17-year-old girl, especially this one, might be so tempted. Like, yes, you know, Calgon, yeah. take me away from this situation. And she was a troubled teen, too. She actually was a student at an alternative high school but had dropped out. She was known to be attracted to young men who were troubled because it was like she wanted to fix them. Mm. That's how she was described. Before they could have their happily ever after, though, and go to California, they needed to find a car. You see, Vanessa was caught trying to use a stolen credit card at the local outlet mall a little while earlier. And while she was being arrested, Dunn had taken off running and left his car in the parking lot. And so after Vanessa was arrested, the cops impounded Dunn's car. So they had this plan to drive to California, but now they had no car. So again, the series of errors in his life is is pretty... So this is not planned. This is just like willy-nilly, like this is all happening in real time. Yeah. Like... So they decided, okay, we'll steal a Volkswagen van. That's perfect choice, right, for this road trip down to California. But they hadn't even gone a few blocks in this stolen van when it ran out of gas... <laughs> So they stole a different car, but they really wanted that van. So they headed to a gas station, filled up a jerry can, headed back toward the van to refuel it. And just a little while later, they were pulled over by King County police. They were just a short distance, maybe a block or two from where that van was parked, coming back with the jerry can when they were pulled over because they were in another stolen vehicle. Yeah. And when they were pulled over, Vanessa and Donald both got out and sprinted for the Volkswagen. They climbed inside and refused to come out. Dunn even threatened to kill Vanessa. That's when the hostage negotiation team was called in, led by Jim Fuda. Within a half an hour, I was on scene, and the poor officer that was negotiating with this guy, trying to keep it calm till I got there, he says, Jim, please take this. I'm getting nowhere with this guy. So I, I took it right over, and I'm negotiating from the right front tire of a police car. They knew Dunn had at least one weapon because he had held a gun to Vanessa's head when he threatened to kill her. 
Fuda says as the primary negotiator, the first thing on his mind was developing a rapport with the suspect while still trying to maintain the upper hand in the situation. He wanted cigarettes. So you don't give it, throw him a pack of cigarettes. You give him two or three so he can have, have something else to ask for, again, if he smokes them. So I put two cigarettes, some matches in a blue medics glove with a rock, and I threw it to the right front tire of the van. He never picked it up. Then he wanted a pen and a paper. I did the same. He never picked it up. I found out later that the pen and the paper was for the girl to write a good by note to, his, to her parents. He, he knew he was going to kill her by then. And then Dunn asked for a cell phone. Buda says he knew that was a high-value item, so he wanted to try to use it to coax the suspect out of his hiding place. Cell phone, is, it, it was my hook, something that has value or meaning. And I kept saying, hey, look, cell phones don't work here up, up in this area. Uh, you can talk on the phone as long as you want when you come on out and all indications that things were going smoothly. I had a commander that would not leave eyeball contact of the scene. And at one point, the guy asked me what he was wanted for. I had no idea other than the situation where we had you right now, because I got thrown right into the primary role. I didn't talk to anybody. And so I leave my cover and I go around to behind a tree about 15 yards away and 20 yards away. And I ask the commander what he's wanted for. Well, the commander tells me, but tells it loud enough so the bad guy hears it. The bad guy says, answers, thank you. Now he starts to wind up. This just really reminds me of just the theater of it all, of, of, you know, how he wanted to make sure that the guy overheard his conversation. You know, the, the fact that he threw the pen and paper in a, a bag with a rock so that it would land properly. I'm just picturing all of this in my mind. And everything is so thoughtful, even though it's happening so fast mm-hmm. and the clock is ticking and there's a person's life at stake. And I'm sure, you know, their senses were heightened and time probably seemed like it was going so quickly or so slow, depending on, you know, your point of view. But to think about how measured and thoughtful every move was during the standoff is really incredible. Which is in complete contrast to how we got to the scene of the crime. It turns out like they ran out of gas and they like, it was so impromptu, so ad hoc. And I'm sitting here thinking and wondering, and I'm just feeling so terrible for the girl. Like, when did she realize that it went from this male-female version of, you know, Thelma and Louise to, I'm going to get killed here by this guy, or I'm in grave danger? I mean, I'm sure she didn't want to die, right? Right. So Dunn, at this point, was getting really impatient with the negotiations, and so was Vanessa. He starts to wind up, and he starts pistol-whipping her. And she's begging me to save her. At this point, Dunn also gives police an ultimatum and a deadline. If they don't give him that cell phone within 30 seconds, he's going to kill her. And when the 30 seconds was up, he slid the van door open. She was in front of him. He executed her right in front of me. She dropped inside the van. And then he shot himself through the two nicks up on either one of his shoulders. And then he said, we had a suicide pact. I gave her the gun. She shot herself. And then I took the gun and shot it. And I said, well, that's not true. I, I, I watched it. And, you know, we watch a lot. We see a lot of dead bodies as policemen and that kind of thing, but not actually 
a, a murder in front of our eyes. This was really emotional for Fuda when we were talking with him. He um, talks about how he still has some regrets, you know, thinking about, is there anything I could have said differently, done differently that might have led to a different outcome? I don't think there probably was anything he could have done differently, but he, you know, obviously feels the weight of that young woman's life that was lost in front of his eyes. And the thought that he could have possibly maybe somehow prevented it still haunts him to this day. Well, and in all the scene of scenes of the crimes that we've done before, we've we've talked to the uh, to the law enforcement about the heavy burden that they have from actually having to witness the the actual scene, but not seeing it right in front of his eyes. This girl who had been just begging Fuda, yeah, save me, save me, a young girl, and then your job is to save her, and he couldn't do it. So I can only imagine, you know the. You know, this would have been a hard one to to put away, right? I mean, it's a hard one just to listen to, yeah. and and we can imagine the desperation of her, like, please save me. And here we are, twenty seven years later, mm-hmm. and his voice still breaks up when he talks about it. Yeah. So the standoff is actually included in a book by a former FBI hostage negotiator named Thomas Strentz. This book is called Psychological Aspects of Crisis Negotiations. He describes this situation this way that Dunn gave police a deadline he knew they couldn't meet so that he could justify killing Vanessa and then it wasn't his fault that she was dead. Yeah, I mean, we can clearly see that he's coming up with solutions to his problem and how can I get out of this? You know, how can I manipulate my way out of this as he had done with his girlfriends, as he had done with law enforcement and judges in the past and not, you know, take accountability for his for his stuff. I mean, how he shot himself like through the shoulder. So there's you know, he can explain away, even though Feuda is standing there and saw him. Right. You know, like (laughs) we can see the personality type. This was a no win situation from the very beginning. Yeah. And even though, uh, you know, Fuda describes him as, as antisocial, which is probably very accurate, uh, Strengths describes him a little bit differently. He says that Dunn has all the characteristics of inadequate personality disorder. I had never heard this phrase before, but he says it's characterized by a history of poor decision making and bungled criminal acts, which Dunn, of course, ding, tries, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Yeah. Which we see that Dunn tries to deal with by taking a hostage. But instead of helping him get get his way and succeed at what he's trying to do, he just makes a bad situation worse. It's almost childlike mm-hmm. the way that people with this trait will try to use others to solve their problems, like you were saying. And Strength says successful negotiations require a level of, quote, parental acceptance, Trying to convince the suspect that you really are on their side and you really want to help them solve their problems. And he talks about, like, what if you found, what if you caught your child lying to you? How would you handle that situation? You know they made a mistake, but they're still your child. You still care about them and you still want the best for them and you want to help them, you know, come out of the situation a better person. And, and he says you have to treat these types of suspects this way. He says in these negotiations, it's likely that another failure for the suspect could trigger them to kill the hostage. So you have to feed into their ego a little bit. Find a way that the suspect can honorably withdraw from the situation. So Strength says rather than using the words surrender, like asking the suspect to surrender, he suggests that negotiators use terms like fold your tent or live to fight another day. So it's like the hostage taker is making an educated decision to move forward 
in a certain way rather than surrendering because he has to. And again, backseat quarterbacking or whatever that saying is we always end up saying in these types of cases, like feud is on the scene having to figure this out really quickly. And he's a quick study, but you only have so much time. Right. You he know? did a pretty good job, he though. A, he yeah. ticks off most of these boxes. Mm-hmm. Strengths also notes that if the suspect has a female hostage, like in this case, there's a high likelihood of Stockholm syndrome. And that definitely seems to be the case with Vanessa. During the trial, she was characterized as a motherly type who was drawn to boys who needed to be fixed. That certainly would describe Donald Dunn. Dunn was eventually sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was sent away to Walla Walla where he could get mental health treatment. But before he left the King County Jail, Jim Fuda requested an interview and Dunn agreed. Tell us about the events that led up to uh, what happened on June 1st of 1993. Well, that's a, that's a big one. Uh, I was pretty much down on my luck. I, uh, I was getting divorced from my wife. I had two sons recently and both their mothers took, took my kids and kind of just disappeared on me, did a disappearing act. I didn't handle that very well. I was having trouble getting a job and uh, I just happened to run into Vanessa and uh, we, me and her started getting into drugs and alcohol and one thing led to another and we started breaking into cars for money to get alcohol. and. So Fuda asked Dunn if he thought about his children at all during the standoff. Dunn said he did, but only briefly, that he'd already been removed from their lives, so they wouldn't really be affected whether he lived or died anyway. Dunn said he had planned on just getting out of the van and committing suicide by cop, allowing police to feel threatened so they would open fire on him. But he says Vanessa begged him not to do that, telling him it was a stupid idea. At first, I had asked her, when the officer backed off, I told her, you have a, a decision to make. You, you can get out of the van if you want. And she said no. And then from that point, I said, well, then I'm taking you hostage. We had made a pact to kill, you know, she wanted me to shoot her if indeed we did get captured. So in my mind, I was still thinking that that's what was happening. The more I think about it now, yes, I think she didn't want to die. But again, he's putting it off on her like, well, she chose this. She chose to stay and she knew that if she stayed, she'd be my hostage and I might kill her. Yeah, I mean, this is real life, but he is such an unreliable narrator. Like you cannot believe a word that he's saying because everything he's putting on everybody else. And obviously that's... You know, back to the assessment, what did you call it? The parental or the... Um, the inadequate called? personality disorder? Yeah. And how, you know, he just really... That that fits him to a T. Right. You yeah. Know? I mean, all of his answers don't really say too much about the events that happened on that day, but they say a lot about his personality and his way of thinking. So during the standoff, Fuda says that he could hear Vanessa screaming, begging for her life. And that's when Dunn issued that 30-second ultimatum. There was no turning back. I had, I reached a point that I just snapped. I couldn't take it anymore. I just got very extremely angry. Uh, I felt like life was over for me. I, you know, I didn't care. Uh, Don, why did you kill Vanessa? Uh, because I, I had told you guys that I would, and I wasn't playing around when I said I would do it. I wanted to show you that I wasn't playing around and when I asked for something that's what I mean I I, you know I need I wanted that phone and and I didn't get the phone so I carried out my 
threats. Again, he's blaming police for not giving him that cell phone. That's the reason he killed Vanessa. Not that it matters, but what did he want the cell phone for? He claims that he wanted to call his parents because he felt like his parents, his mom especially, was a voice of reason and that, you know, she might be able to help him figure out how to end the situation without there being violence. And it shows, you know, his disregard for the the women in his life mm-hmm. and how her life was so expendable to him. Like, if he really wanted to end it, as he said in there, like, if he felt like it was over and he was just tired of it, and, you know, why didn't he just push her out and then commit suicide? I mean, if that was really, it was still about the anger, the power, the control, to the very end, manipulation. I, I don't know about you, but I have conversations with my daughters about, you know, the men, that, yeah. the potential men right? that come into her their lives and what to look for. You even don't before. want a fixer-upper. No fixer-uppers. <laughs> yeah. But if you feel like a man is even manipulating you from the very beginning or a boy or trying to make you feel bad or trying to, you know, like, I just feel like this is a really scary personality type that's... I don't want to say it's worse than someone who who beats you, but it's like it is really scary. Well, it's so manipulative. Yeah. If if somebody's coming outright beating you or, you know, putting you down, whatever is, you know, it's very blatant about it. You can say, oh, that that's a bad person. Yeah. You know, when they're super manipulative like this and they make it seem like they're the victim and well, the world did this to me. Yeah. You feel sorry for them Mm -hmm. and it's easier to excuse. Well, they have bad behavior because of whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, because Fuda had planned to use this interview for a training video for other hostage negotiators, he asked Dunn whether there was anything that he could have done differently that might have led to a less violent resolution. If he would have uh, actually talked to me a little more and and asked me what was going on (laughs) as far as why I was at the point that I got to, um, and then, you know, just reassure me that that things were going to be all right I you know I like I said I had gotten to the point that I didn't care anymore and I was at the end of my rope and I think if someone would have you know told me things were going to be all right and just you know tried to talk some sense into me that it would have helped I seriously doubt that that didn't happen and, I, and when you talk about the restraint that Fuda has yeah, right? right there, I would have just been like going across the, the table and just, I mean, it, it almost feels like how do you get through to someone like that who refuses to be accountable for their own behavior, who just can't stop manipulating? I mean, this guy, it feels like he's just on autopilot and he's just going to throw it on the other person no matter what. In right. this case, it's now Fuda's fault that, that he did this. Right. At one point, he blames his parole officer for failing to get a mental health treatment earlier, even though they did try and he just didn't show up. He blames, you know, the judge. He blames the women. He blames Fuda. Like, he blames everyone for stuff in his life. I don't think there is ever a point in this interview that he takes responsibility for anything. So let's get to the good part. How can we look at this video that he was using as a training? What was Fuda able to do with this to basically make it so other people can recognize this personality type in hostage negotiations and just, I mean, we can look at this in our own lives and just be like, hey, you know, like I said with my daughters, like, be aware, you know? Yeah, and he did. He created this uh, training video for other hostage negotiators 
on how to deal with antisocial personality. And it has some of these tips like, you know, try to get on their good side, make it seem like you are you're wanting to help them. You're not necessarily wanting to end the standoff. You're wanting to help them fold up their tent and go home. Just kind of how to play the mind games with this type of personality is what is what he's doing with this video. And Dunn just seemed calm and reasonable through this whole interview. There was really no sign of his violence or his anger at all. And when Fiuta asked Dunn what he thought about when he reflected on his crimes, he focused on the positive. Well, I try to, try to look at it as a learning experience. I, I feel, like I said, I still feel angry for what I've done. Uh, but I try to think about it as, as if me going to prison, I... I wouldn't be able to go to college on the outside. Uh, I have a place to stay. I don't have to worry about working. So this all turned out peachy for him. I'm I'm literally kind of speechless right now. You know, like I feel for Vanessa and her family. You know, yeah, her life was not a learning experience. Yeah, that that is not what she was on this earth for to give you a learning experience. I'm sure she had you know dreams and probably could have had a bright future. Yeah. Feuda was, like we said, remarkably composed during this entire interview. It went on for, I believe, about 20, 25 minutes. And at the end of it, he just said he just had to get up and walk away. I have to tell you, it was one of the hardest things I've had to do in my career, to sit across from this guy and be nice and to get what I wanted out of it. And I made a 19-minute training video on negotiating with the antisocial personality and the lies that he told and how it's never his fault. Yeah, I did point a rifle at my at my wife and threatened to steal my kid, but there weren't any bullets in it. I didn't have any bullets in the 30-06 rifle, these kinds of things. So again, never his fault. He's never really the bad guy. He just is put in bad situations where that's his only way out. You know, it's interesting how, like, the evolution of how police departments, like, especially, like, in the Pacific Northwest, dealt with, you know, hostage, hold-up individual, person who is suicidal. Like, in the 70s, they had that approach of, you know, two officers kick the door down with one on the, you know, at the back door. And it was just a really... Like, we got to end this now, <laughs> yeah. whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it rarely went well for all involved. And so here they have, he's doing this training video. We can really see how law enforcement is embracing the abnormal psychology aspect of it and how there are things that you can do to deal with these types of personalities and have better outcomes. I also think there's a message here for the criminal justice system. Oh, yeah. You know, the the number of times that he went through some kind of a court proceeding and yet was just released mm-hmm. is incredible. I mean, he was in court at least four to five times before this kidnapping of Vanessa. And in every case, he was let go and didn't serve any jail time. Twice he was sentenced to some jail time, but never served it. So, I mean, no, I think that's a great transition point because I think that that's where we're at in terms of like in the 70s, they were like, hey, Let's look at this abnormal behavior when we're looking at these suspects instead of just doing the same old, you know, kick the door in, blah, blah, blah. And there was some pushback, you know, about that. And I know that from Fuda, he was saying that there was some pushback with this new style of negotiation. But we need to look at that when women say, hey, my husband is threatening me. I, you know, we don't, they need to, I don't know what the answer is to that. Well, at the time, if a woman recanted, they would, they would 
not press the charges because they needed a witness. Now they actually will still press charges even if a woman recants because it's been proven that that happens so frequently and that those women are likely to get abused again. There's there's kind of a different feeling about it now, and prosecutors are more likely to continue the case even if the woman backs out. So I think that is a really positive direction that things have gone in as far as the courts are concerned. And learning about these different types of personalities, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm -hmm. inadequate personality disorder. I've never heard that term before, but it fits so perfectly. And now that we have thought about it and explored that idea, when you meet people, you can use that information to make decisions about who you're going to trust, who you're going to work with, who you're going to be friends with, who you're going to date. You know, all these little pieces of information that may seem you know, not immediately relevant, sometimes they are very important in your life later on. Well, and the art, I mean, there's a reason, the art of negotiation. I mean, it truly is a skill. I've been actually like delving deep into the FBI negotiators since we've been talking to you. <laughs> your, your rabbit hole for the week? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because I think that, you know, they have said, like when we talked about what's the difference between a psychopath and, and a, a sociopath, sociopath, you know, I was doing this research and it says, you know, a psychopath, we know that they have zero empathy, but it is estimated that they're the general population, they're there are one percent psychopaths, but most of them do not go on to commit crimes. According to a Harvard blog on the subject, some experts have argued that people with antisocial personalities could be more prevalent in the business world than in other fields. Without the inhibiting effect of a conscience, writes Middlesex University business professor Clive Roland Body in the journal Management Decision. That's a mouthful. Such people are able to ruthlessly charm, lie, cajole, and manipulate their way up an organizational hierarchy in pursuit of their main aims of power, wealth, and status at the expense of anyone who gets in their way. Now, I have to say I have never been in a really abusive relationship, but I did date someone that, looking back, I think was a sociopath. Have you ever? You know, I feel really fortunate that, you know, I had a rocky childhood. But one thing that never happened in that childhood is that I was never thankfully, I was never abused, physically abused. And so I think that to me, if somebody were to hit me, it would feel so wrong. But I mean, like, I'm talking about the psychological abuse. Like, have you ever been with somebody that now looking back? Because like at the time, I never would have. I never would have labeled this person as a sociopath at the time. Of course, I was a teenager. But now looking back, uh, you know, I see it. Yeah, I mean, I've been in relationships where, I mean, the relationship that I was in before with my husband, I was with somebody that I it just, you know, wound me up so much where it was like, I knew that it wasn't good for me. I felt that I was being manipulated. I felt that I was... I, I just was like, and and fortunately, I I was able to get out of it. And I recognize, like, this type of personality is not good for me. Oftentimes, you don't even know you're being manipulated if the person is really, really good, if they're truly a sociopath. I mean, people are manipulative. I'm manipulative. You know, we can manipulate to get what we want. But it's when it's notched up a level when you've got you're dealing with a sociopath or a psychopath where you don't even know you're being manipulated. I don't even think they know that they're manipulating you half the time. They truly feel like they're the victims and it's everyone else that needs to help them and coddle them and make them feel better. And, you know, if anything goes wrong, it's somebody else's fault. I I don't think that they do it on purpose. I, I don't think they even realize most of the time what they're doing. How did you get out of that relationship? Oh, well, so it did start to become physically abusive. 
And so that's when I got out. But I was with this person for over a year before that happened. How old were you? I was young. I was very young. Uh, I was a teenager. I was like 15. What? I mean, how did it start out? I mean, not to like go in here. He was just, he was an older guy. He was four or five years older than I was. I I guess I can, I can really relate with Vanessa because he was four or five years older than I was. He was cute, you know, very charismatic. Um, All of my friends kind of had a crush on him. So when he turned his attention to me, it was flattering, very flattering. And I didn't realize kind of what I was in for. One thing that he was really, really good at is manipulating my time so that I lost all connections with my friends. He completely took up all of my time. And when we weren't together, it was like we were on the phone or writing notes to each other. And and if that didn't happen, you know, he was very upset. So it was very like high maintenance to keep him happy. But when you said that he was upset, this is the key right here. I bet you he made you feel bad. And oh, that you yeah. were doing something wrong. Yeah, he made me feel like I was ignoring him or, you know, not giving him enough attention, not being a good girlfriend. And he was like my first real boyfriend. So yeah. it was like I felt like I, I don't know what I'm doing. OK, if you say I'm being a bad girlfriend, you must be correct. But get this. So we were together for a little over a year. There was a point where he grabbed me. And that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back where I was just like, no, this is not okay. And that's when we finally broke up. And that gets right to the part that I was talking about earlier, where it's like, physically, if somebody hits you, you're like, wait a second, right. this is abuse. You can see it. You can certainly feel it. But when somebody is like that slow roll of manipulation, you don't even realize You don't it. even realize it. So just a few years ago, this is crazy. I get a call from an attorney in California. Do tell. I'm at the edge of my seat. Apparently, here. my ex is serving a life sentence in a maximum security prison right now. Oh my! And gosh. the crime that he was convicted of happened while we were dating, and his attorney wanted me to be a witness for him to get him out of jail. What was the <laughs> What was the crime? I mean, you don't have to go into it, but like, it's what? sexually abusing children. And he tried to claim that he was with me at the time that the crime happened, and so it couldn't have been him. But see, here's here's our point that we're always talking about. These guys, and what I always say to my my children or my girls or my boys too, like they're not these boogeymen. I mean, like you said, he was probably like the most charming, totally the, charming, handsome, yep. and all that stuff. And and it's like you just you just don't know what it's what's in a person's heart. You certainly can't judge it by what they look like. Exactly. And the attorney was completely had the wool over her eyes, like. You, I could tell when I was talking to her that she just had no idea. You know, she fell for his line, hook, line, and sinker. And uh, she truly believed, you know, he's innocent. And I don't have any knowledge of the crime itself, but I do know that based on his personality, it's definitely something he could do. Well, you know, earlier in, a, in an episode, we talked about you said that you were really sort of naive and you'd trust anybody when you were a kid. And if I was that way, too. And I had brought up like, you know, I grew up with a single parent. It was it was rough. You know, like I had to use those instincts. Yeah. To really protect you know, yourself. In, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were in some situations where it was like that sixth sense of your body that the, the, the hairs on your neck do not underestimate children. They are really good reads of people, you know. This sense came in my husband. He had a friend, somebody from California, because my husband grew up in California. And he was like going off on how great this guy was. And and the guy showed up at our house with his wife and their young daughter. And my husband was so impressed with him. He had this really super nice car. And they just seemed to have everything together. Yeah. And there, again, the hair on the back of my neck, just like 
this guy was off. Like something about him, even though he was charming, even though he, I don't know, there was something about him that I just wasn't into. And it turns out later on, this guy ended up taking his wife hostage and like having this shootout. What? Yes. With like all of these law enforcement. He's now in, in prison on, <sighs> you know what I mean? So it's like back to <laughs> believing your intuition. Yeah. Listening to that little voice and when the hairs stand up on the back of your head. Yeah. And now that I have teenage daughters, mm-hmm. the oldest of which is the same age I was when I was dealing with all that. Man, do I have an eagle eye out for you know, anything in their lives, whether it's drugs and alcohol or boys or like whatever. I am constantly looking for signs that there's something wrong. And my girls are so tired of me thinking that something's going to go wrong. Yeah. They're like, Mom, chill out. We're good kids. We're not going to do any of that stuff. But it's like, you know, I was a good kid. I got good grades. I had lots of friends. And I got into that situation. So... You just never know. I mean, do you feel like it's working out in your situation or do you do you, do you share with them what happened and why you have these concerns or I don't how do you... they, I haven't told them the specifics, mm-hmm. but I've just told them that I got into a lot of trouble when I was their age and made a lot of poor decisions. And mm-hmm. so I know what's possible. And I like to blame being a parent. It's not my fault. I'm a mom. This is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. If I don't do what I think I'm supposed to do, then I'm, I'm failing and I'm not doing my job. So sorry if you don't like it when I take your phone and read your text messages and you feel like it's an invasion of your privacy. But yeah. I feel like as a mother, it's my job to ensure that you are safe and not texting with people who are sketchy. Yeah. So I, I mean, just I just blame the title and yeah. say, you know, it's not my fault. I'm a mom and that's what moms do. I, I kind of do that. But I also, again, with my kids, trust my gut. And, you know, it hasn't led me astray so far. Trust, but verify. That's what I say. Trust, but verify. I I don't (laughs) like I'm not one to track my kids, but I do share with them stories, not anything crazy, but just like, hey, this is this is why this can happen. And you have to be careful. All right. So let's end it there, because I feel like we could just keep talking forever. No, I agree. Yeah. (laughs) So, Carolyn, what's coming up next week? Kim, a Renton mom to three young girls, had recently dipped a toe into the dating world. She met a guy through a dating app where he appeared to be this great, amazing guy. She had no idea who she was really dating. We'll have more on that next week. Oh, boy. (laughs) Another one of those. Nobody's ever going to want to date again after listening to our podcast. Oh, my gosh, yeah. (laughs) All right, that's Carolyn. I'm Kim, and this is The Scene of the Crime.